Good morning, everyone. My name is Kyle Mudd. I'm one of the third year pediatric residents. I'd like to start off by thanking all of you for being here in attendance today, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Smith for hosting us this morning and affording us this opportunity to present research here at Grand Rounds, as well as my research partner, Tasha Desai, who uh, presented this research at Eastern Society of Pediatric Research earlier this spring, as well as my mentor, Stephen Rogers, and all of my co-authors, Amy Hunter, Danielle Chouinard, and Dr. Smith. I have no financial disclosures to report, and this study is IRB exempt. Every year, there is greater than a million children who present to emergency departments across the country for ingestions. Greater than 85 of these, 85% of these ingestions are unintentional in nature. Most occur in children younger than five years of age, and largely, as everyone here in this room knows, they're preventable. The CDC reports that there are greater than 2 million calls to U.S. poison control centers nationwide every year reporting ingestions, and greater than half of these calls are for pediatric patients. And while ingestions can occur anywhere, more than 93% occur at home. Medications are the most common offenders in terms of exposures and Although there's ongoing research in this field, there's still limited knowledge about the demographic characteristics. Our purpose was to describe demographic characteristics of children poisoned by ingestions, as well as to analyze recent epidemiologic trends to guide our prevention efforts. <coughs> this was a descriptive retrospective cohort study. We used a single database the Connecticut Hospital Association looking from 2011 to 2014. The data that, um, that was generated included age, gender, race, zip code, and hospital presentation. We used ICD-9 and 10 codes to search for ingestions of intentional and unintentional nature of analgesics, narcotics, CNS depressants, and other unidentified agents. These were a list of those codes that we used to search the database. Included in the study were children aged 0 to 17 years old uh, who presented to any emergency department within the network in Connecticut from the years 2011 to 2014. And all you needed to do to be excluded was be an adult. We found that 1,961 1, children presented during this time period for ingestions to emergency departments statewide. We grouped these children into three age groups, as previous studies had done, 0, 12 to 17 years of age, 5 to 11 years old, and 0 to 4 years old. As you can see, there was a majority of the adolescent uh, presentations that were female, um, and this was followed by uh, the second uh, highest incidence in the zero to four years of age, and there was slight, uh, slightly higher exposures among males and females. This was true as well for the five to 11 years of age. Looking at the data by race, uh, reflected largely the Connecticut population demographics, uh, with 61% being Caucasian, followed by 16% being Hispanic, Latino, Spanish origin, and the last um, following up 11% African-American children. When we analyzed the data by year, we found that there was an upward trend, as you can see with the trend line here. Um, and although there's not data from 2015 and beyond, our experience here at Connecticut Children's that this would likely continue to increase and possibly significantly more in recent years. 
In the zero to four age group, we divided the data looking at rural-urban divide. Um, the definition of rural would be any town, 10,000 people or less, or having a, and having a population density of 500 people or less per square mile. We found that 90% within this age group presented um, the ingestion occurred in an urban setting rather than a rural. Looking at the data and the presentations uh, by hospital location, we found that there was a majority that presented to three counties, Fairfield, Hartford, and New Haven. They had the highest incidences of presentation. We also saw that these counties had the highest percentage of urban towns as well. As you can see here on the graph, the blue indicates the frequency or the incidence, and the red indicates the percentage of urban towns within each county. We found that children accounted for about 2,000 ED visits in four years. There was a male, males had slightly more ingestions in the toddler school age group, whereas females had more in the adolescent group. The three counties with the majority of ingestions at presentation were Fairfield, Hartford, and New Haven County, having 71%. And we also found that this was, these counties had the highest percentages of urban towns per county. What does this mean and how does this help us with our prevention efforts? We wanted to find target populations that we could aim our preventive efforts. These included parents of toddlers, adolescent females, urban communities, and non-pediatric emergency departments. The study did have limitations. It was, based, it was generated from a single database. Um, as all uh, research generated from a single database, there are, of course, limitations with that, such as under-reporting as many children likely were uh, monitored from home with or without poison control centers telephone guidance. There could have been over-reporting in, in that many of the ingestions may have not been counted as single or double that were transferred between facilities. The ingestions were not differentiated by class. This could be a future study that would help aim preventative efforts and Presumptive intention was made based upon the age group, such that adolescents were deemed to be intentional in nature and younger age groups deemed to be unintentional in nature. In conclusion, our target populations for ingestion prevention in Connecticut include parents of toddlers and adolescent females, as well as urban, those presenting to urban emergency departments. Further studies that are needed to investigate um, and, aim, and help us aim our preventive efforts include looking at specific ingestions, response to interventions, as well as national trends. Any questions? Questions? Um, not that I recall. Uh, we mainly looked at the codes based upon the agent and tried to broaden it to include as many as possible. Uh, I imagine that if we looked harder, we could could possibly find a way, and this could be an area of future research. That's certainly um, an area that Dr. Rogers is working on right now and has contact with the Poison Control Center. So hopefully uh, we'll have more research and more light shed upon that. Sorry, in the back.
Yes, the Connecticut Hospital Association. So the hospital by presentation was based upon the zip code, so not specifically our hospital or Yale, but um, by zip code and by county. Okay, so you had that, that was not available to you then. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the, the question is, how, so how do you follow this up, you know, again, briefly in terms of getting deeper into the types of ingestions, because that would be very important. The types of ingestions, we could divide, um, subdivide further the ICD codes. Um, granted, that could be difficult because sometimes they're just identified by ingestion of um, their more broad ICD codes uh, that are not delineated by the agent of ingestion. But it could be an aim to uh, try to identify further and definitely something that uh, we're interested, um, especially with uh, the opioid epidemic and um, being able to identify areas that we could aim our preventative efforts. Steve, you need a microphone. There's an echo. One more time. The poison control data will help us figure that out. So. Oh, it just <laughs> okay, I think it is time to move on. Uh, Kyle, congratulations. Thank you very Don't much. Don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> Good luck. So our next presentation is entitled The Impact of an Institutional Treatment Algorithm to Improve the Control of Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting. It will be presented by Dr. Joshua Goldman and the mentor is Dr. Andrea Horsey. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. I want to thank uh, my co-authors and my mentor, Dr. Horsey, as well. Um, so I wanted to talk exactly about the impact of um, an institutional algorithm to improve our rates of um, CYME controlled chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting. I uh, didn't put a disclosure slide in here, but I have none. Um, so why do we care so much about uh, CINV? It's still ranked um, kind of across the board as one of the, either one of the most or the most distressing symptom um, for cancer patients and in the pediatric realm for the parents and the family watching their child undergo cancer treatment. Um, very hard to objectify nausea um, kind of in a measure that we can measure and rely on. Um, and luckily, we do have some clinical practice guidelines um, developed by the Pediatric Group, Oncology Group of Ontario. Um, they are evidence-based, but a lot of kind of the data backing pediatric treatments are kind of low quality or minimal quality, but still um, is a good kind of rubric to start with. And they are endorsed by kind of the major societies, uh, Children's Oncology Group and the Multinational Association of Supportive Care and Cancer, among others. Um, and so here's an example of the treatment algorithm um, from the guidelines in 2013 that um, we used here at Connecticut Children's. Um, so it does spell it out based on um, how metagenic your chemotherapy is with your kind of highest um, metagenic agents receiving the most intensive um, anti-nausea prophylaxis and treatment, and then your lowest risk receiving um, either no routine prophylaxis or um, Zofran. Um, of note, there have been updated guidelines since this 2013 um, release that in, um, reflect that we now use a, prep, a prepotent or amend in patients over six months of age. Um, but this, is the, this was the guideline at the time of um, study completion. Um, and so we also want to take those guidelines and incorporate something called the Pediatric Nausea Assessment Tool, or the PNAT, um, which is a um, clinically validated measure to assess pediatric nausea um, for patients ages 4 to 18. Um, Four-item face scale, kind of like the pain scales that we use in the hospital. Um, it even breaks it down further to try to be very patient-specific. So. There's a very kind of detailed rubric of how you um, initiate the survey. You first figure out what the family kind of calls nausea, because every family is a different word. Um, and from that, then you try to really coach the child. So this is what nausea is. How many are you feeling nauseous? Um, and can you kind of match up on the space scale with one being um, no nausea, four being the worst? And it even breaks it down 
um, for the youngest patients ages four to eight um, with only two choices because um, we know that our younger patients can get overwhelmed when they're faced with a lot of choices. Um, so if they're saying they're not nauseous, they get choices one and two versus if they are, they get choices three and four. Um, so the goal of this study was to reduce uh, CINV in patients admitted for chemotherapy um, by kind of standardizing the regimens prescribed um, here um, according to the um, CINV algorithm that we developed from the POGO guidelines, and it was, in fact, just the exact algorithm that I put up there um, on kind of one easier-to-read piece of paper. Um, so far, methods. It was a single institution study here at Connecticut Children's, um, quality improvement-based research. Um, and so uh, we had the CINV treatment algorithm that I showed you previously. Um, we had patients not only um, be treated according to that, but they would fill emesis logs out um, and also do PNAT surveys. Um, we had a, pre, a cohort pre-kind of intervention trying to standardize care on the algorithm, and then after we did that, um, and then in terms of implementing these changes, we did um, provider education of faculty, um, both by getting physical copies of the algorithm and kind of the evidence for its use, and then also kind of refreshers and reminders at um, departmental meetings. Um, so all children admitted for chemotherapy um, were consent provided were eligible for the study. Um, really no exclusion criteria as long as you were inside those 4 to 18 years of age. Um, providers were able to deviate from suggested treatment at clinical discretion, so didn't necessarily have to affect any changes in care if someone wasn't comfortable doing so. Um, and then in terms of kind of the house officer role of that, um, residents were asked not to make any changes to anti-medic control without talking with their attending. Um, data was compared with chi-score analysis using SAS. Um, we're looking for really a complete response to anti-medic therapy defined as having um, no emphasis on therapy. Um, and then our secondary outcomes were kind of nausea suppression, um, adherence to the treatment algorithm, um, and that's what we were looking at. Um, so for our patient population, we had an initial cohort of 70 admissions um, in 2013 through 2014. Um, we had a post-cohort algorithm of 78 admissions. Both of these were actually 27 patients, so you were able to participate each time you were admitted. And we were looking for you to complete at least one PNAT assessment to be included. Um, but some patients completed more than maximum um, that one patient did in the post-cohort analysis was nine. Um, it was six in the pre-cohort. And ideally, we're giving logs four times daily during chemotherapy and then for seven days following. Um, patient demographics did show, unfortunately, a little heterogeneity in terms of our treatment groups. Um, so might be one limitation to this study, but pretty well balanced except for tumor type. Um, so hope, we we're hoping that we can uh, account for this because we did stratify in our data analysis based on how metagenic chemotherapy was. But for instance, there are more leukemia lymphoma patients in our pre-algorithm cohort, and then um, kind of more of the um, sarcomas in our post-algorithm cohort. In terms of our results, so did see an impressive um, reduction um, in emesis defined as a complete, complete suppression, so 52%. Um, Pre-algorithm had no emesis during their chemotherapy emissions, rose to 72% following, um, with um, very clear statistical significance. Um, and then in terms of treatment failure, which we defined as having daily emesis despite um, kind of aggressive anti-emetics, um, fell from 23% pre-algorithm to 6% post-algorithm. So saw a dramatic response there as well. Um, kind of reflected a different way. If you controlled for the emetogenicity of the chemo, a patient was 3.33 times more likely to vomit prior to guideline implementation. Um, so showing kind of when you're up the odds ratio that high that it's a pretty good intervention. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to see any difference in nausea control um, or maximum PNET scores after adjusting for chemotherapy and metagenicity. Kind of before we adjusted, just in the raw data analysis, you actually saw a nausea better controlled um, pre-intervention. Um, but then once you um, factored in how metagenic chemotherapy was, there was no statistical change. Um, and we also looked at a treatment adherence rate, and so 74% of the time after algorithm introduction it was followed. Um, and every single inter, um, kind of deviation from the intervention reflected um, provider knowledge of the, a prepotent or amends kind of dosing changes where it was approved for ages six months and older. So um, many patients, so 15 patients, less than 12, often received, they received a prepotent um, because, again, it was clinically approved and we knew that it made sense to do even though it wasn't part of our algorithm. And then there were seven patients over 12 um, who did not receive a preparatory who otherwise um, would have been a candidate for it. Um, so kind of discussion of the data. So we saw marked improvement in controlled chemotherapy-induced vomiting, which was our primary outcome, um, and saw that our institutional protocol was effective for implementing that change. 
um, all deviations from protocol likely reflected um, a preptent approval for younger patients or concern about chemotherapy interaction with the preptent because um, it does interact with some of the agents we use commonly. Um, they're not a contraindication to use the, um, a preptent necessarily. Um, and then unfortunately, despite using a validated clinical tool for nausea assessment, um, we weren't able to show um, kind of any difference um, pre and post algorithm implementation. Um, study definitely limited by a small sample size. We had 27 um, unique patients in each cohort. Um, and so even with multiple admissions, you have a smaller powered study. Um, we did have a hetero we did it from heterogeneity of our cohorts based on kind of tumor type um, in the two groups. Um, no data from our younger patients, so we certainly treat plenty of patients less than four years of age, and we didn't study them in, in this uh, investigation. And then, while nausea is difficult to um, quantify, we also didn't address at all the role of anticipatory nausea and vomiting, because some patients, um, even just when they enter the hospital knowing it's for chemotherapy, will become nauseous prior to getting any um, emetogenetic medications, so that wasn't accounted for as well. Um, so kind of in terms of ways to go from here, um, want to look at anticipatory chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting more and see if there's um, ways we can reduce that as well. Um, there were some treatment refractory cases, so how do we get that 6% down to zero? Um, through kind of adjuvant therapies, both medical and non-medical. Um, we want to still improve our nausea assessment because we used a clinically validated tool and we still didn't see kind of the difference that we thought we would get or the difference that kind of correlates with our reduction in vomiting. Um, and then we still have to look at kind of functional impairment. So these patients, even those who are well-controlled, miss a lot of school, miss a lot of work for our older patients. Um, so in conclusion, control of chemotherapy-induced vomiting improved dramatically after widespread implementation of the algorithm. Nausea rates were similar, but difficult to assess and could reflect small sample or trial heterogeneity. And we need future work um, to optimally integrate um, both the guidelines and our assessment tools in clinical practice. Uh, any questions? I'll start with a question. So thank you for that terrific presentation. So there was reduction in vomiting, but not in nausea control. So tell us your thoughts about why you think those were the findings there. So I think a lot of it is because even when you're trying to kind of be very formal, coach uh, kind of patients through it, um, like trying to get them to define what nausea is, is still very different. Um, and then also it's a lot harder to kind of Subjective, objectively kind of analyzed um, like your frequency of nausea versus vomiting with a log. You either vomited or you didn't, so we had a more binary choice and outcome measure to measure, so that's probably a big difference. Um, and we likely would see it also potentially at a bigger sample size because we only have 27 patients in each group. That might also be a limitation there as well. I'll ask another question. <laughs> um, so after you instituted the guidelines, I noticed that 26% of the to those guidelines, so what do you attribute that to, and were you able to actually analyze um, among those who adhere to the guidelines versus those? So like I was saying, the only differences were from a preparatine dosing or a MEND, which is a new neurokine, which was then a newer neurokinin 1 inhibitor for um, vomiting, so all the patients who were less than kind of age where it was approved still received it, and that probably reflected just provider knowledge of the new FDA approval and kind of safety profile of that medication. Um, unclear why the, some of the older patients didn't get it. It could have been that they didn't have enough kind of symptoms to, for people to think they've merited it, or some, there are some interactions with chemotherapy, where again, it's not an absolute contraindication, but it's not kind of the label is used with cautions so that might have played into why some of our older patients weren't given that medication. Excellent job, Josh. Really love the concept you've used of using standardized and evidence-based approaches to improve care in such a short time and with a really small number of patients. So as you know, in our Clinical Effectiveness Committee, we work with clinical algorithms like this, and two of the things we use are order sets and educational PowerPoints. So I wanted to ask, did you use an order set to drive this? And secondly, how did you do the education for the uh, oncology uh, providers? So I, I didn't personally do the education of the providers, but I know there were educational PowerPoints involved, plus kind of widespread guideline dissemination um, and just frequent reminders to use it. Um, and then in terms of an order set um, when putting in orders, uh, it doesn't kind of box it up as nicely as the treatment algorithm did into kind of zero risk, mild, moderate, or severe. Um, but all the 
all of the options were listed kind of in the emission order panel. So you, it did make it a little easier, though it wasn't grouped strictly based on the metagenicity class. I think we're out of time. So let's thank Dr. Gold for the terrific presentation. <laughs> So a uh, German poet, Goethe, once said that you are what you eat, but it's really the case that you are what your microbiome eats. And that's what Susan Pitts is going to talk to us about today. So her abstract is entitled, Impact of Two Different Liquid Human Milk Fortifiers on the Neonatal Intestinal Microbiome. And her mentor is Adam Matson, who is so back there somewhere. There he is. Please, Good morning. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to present my research today. Um, my name is Susan Pitts. I'm a third-year neonatal fellow at CCMC, and today I'll be discussing the impact of two different liquid human milk fortifiers on the neonatal intestinal microbiome. Um, so liquid HMF um, is a human milk supplement that we use in the NICU on a daily basis. It provides additional protein, calories, and minerals needed for adequate neonatal growth and nutrition. There are currently two forms of the cow's milk-based liquid HMF available, acidified and non-acidified. Oh, sorry. I skipped right over my slide. I have nothing to disclose. <laughs> so there's two forms available, acidified and non-acidified, and this relates to the sterilization methods. Um, so obviously the acidified product is acidified and the non-acidified is heat-treated. Um, so switching gears now to the neonatal intestinal microbiome. Um, so what happens when a healthy microbiome becomes unbalanced by abnormal, abnormal microbial colonization, um, or what we call dysbiosis? Um, the list of dysbiosis associations is long and continues to grow. Intestinal pro problems include altered digestion of nutrients, decreased peristalsis, and neck. Um, dysbiosis has also been associated with asthma, allergies, obesity, diabetes, and several other disease processes. Recently, we have also seen poor neurodevelopmental outcomes associated with dysbiosis in animal models. So how do we prevent dysbiosis? We know there are many factors that contribute to the development of the neonatal intestinal microbiome. However, many of these factors are out of our control, including maternal health, mode of delivery, and genetics. However, there are a few clinical NICU factors that we have associated with microbial changes, including antibiotics in the neonatal diet. These factors are specifically interesting to clinical neonatologists as we work towards adjusting our practice habits to promote healthier microbial colonization patterns. Well, the infant diet um, is one clinical variable that we can influence and has been associated with microbiome changes. <laughs> Breastfed infants are more likely to develop what are commonly known to be good or healthy intestinal bacteria such as Formicutes, Bacteroides, and Actinobacteria. Bacteria in these phyla, such as Lactobacillus and Bifidobacterium, are commonly used in probiotics to promote the development of a healthy intestinal microbiome. On the other hand, infants fed formula are more likely to develop a less healthy intestinal microbiome with increased numbers of proteobacteria and firmicutes, such as E. coli and Clostridia and Staphylococcus. Of note, increased proteobacteria growth has also been associated with the development of neck and neonates. Medications, including antacids, have been associated with microbiome changes as well. Antacid therapy has been associated with dysbiosis and bacterial overgrowth. However, microbiome changes related to acidified versus non-acidified liquid HMF, as far as we know, have not been previously reported. So this brings us back to diet. If the intestinal microbiome changes have been associated with the use of antacids, how might variation in dietary acidity specifically in regard to the type of liquid human milk fortifier that we use, impact the intestinal microbiome. So the specific aim of this research project was to compare the intestinal microbiome of preterm infants fed breast milk supplemented with acidified versus non-acidified liquid HMF. Our hypothesis was that the fecal microbiome of infants fed acidified liquid HMF would differ from those fed non-acidified. Our study design is retrospective. 
Stool samples were collected as part of an ongoing microbiome study at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Um, of note, there was a temporal difference in sample collection as most of our um, acidified liquid HMS samples were collected prior to the non-acidified samples. This was due to a clinical change in practice in our unit. The inclusion criteria for our study was preterm infants born at the gestational age less than 30 weeks, inborn between April 2014 and June 2015, or transferred to, to the Connecticut Children's NICU within 24 hours of life. Um, they had to receive, obviously, human milk fortified with liquid HMF, and they had to have stool samples that yielded adequate product for sequencing following DNA extraction. Our exclusion criteria include infants with congenital malformations of the intestines, such as congenital atresia, gastroschisis, or emphalocils. Um, infants with neck were also excluded to limit confounding, as we mentioned earlier that these infants um, have uh, dysbiosis associated with their intestinal microbiome. The clinical information for each infant was collected by retrospective chart abstraction, including day of life of sample acquisition, cumulative liquid HMF days, antibiotic exposure, and acid exposure. So our laboratory methods um, included stool sample collection, bacterial DNA extraction, amplification of the V4 hypervariable region of the 16S RNA gene by PCR. This region was then sequenced using aluminumiseq. And finally, using weather software, OTO taxonomy was assigned by clustering and matching reads to the Green Genes Reference Database. For our statistical analysis, we looked at alpha and beta diversity outcomes. Alpha diversity refers to the diversity of bacteria within each sample. Our alpha diversity measures were OTUs, or operational taxonomic units, and SDIs, or Simpson's diversity indices. Between-group comparisons were performed with Mann-Whitney U-tests. Within-group comparisons were performed with paired T-tests. Hierarchical linear regression analysis was also performed on a per-sample basis to investigate associations between clinical factors, OTUs, and SDIs. Beta diversity refers to the diversity of bacteria between two different samples. Our diversity measures um, for beta diversity were percent major bacterial phyla. Again, between-group comparisons were performed with Mann-Whitney U-tests, and within-group comparisons were performed with paired T-tests. So some of our results. Um, our alpha, or sorry, our acidified liquid HMF cohort included 16 infants. Our non-acidified liquid HMF cohort included 13, for a total N of 39. Microbiome data from a total of 136 stool samples were compared. Um, total days of liquid HMF, antibiotic, and adacid exposure were similar between the acidified and non-acidified groups, with p-values greater than 0.05. Prior to fortification, um, we did not find um, significant differences in OT OTUs or SDIs between groups with our paired and unpaired T-tests. Post-fortification, again, we did not find differences in OTUs or STIs between groups with our paired and unpaired T-tests. However, um, for hierarchical linear regression analysis, to summarize our results, um, age and days and antibiotic exposure were known to significantly affect OTU and SDI values. And acid exposure was known to significantly affect OTU values, but did not have a significant effect on SDIs. After adjusting for day of life and an antibiotic exposure, the addition of non-acidified liquid HMF was associated with higher SDIs compared to acidified liquid HMF. This corresponds with a greater degree of alpha diversity among our non-acidified liquid HMF samples. So to orient you to um, these next slides, which are going to talk about our beta diversity, um, the purple here and here, um, the purple refers to our acidified yeah. group, and the green is our non-acidified group. On the pre-fortification slides, you'll see lighter colors, and the post-fortification, the shades are slightly darker. So our pre-fortification beta diversity results revealed that the abundance of firmicutes um, was significantly lower, um, and the abundance of proteobacteria was significantly higher um, in our pre-acidified versus pre-non-acidified liquid HMF. Um, this um, baseline phyla distribution was different between our two groups prior to fortification. So post-fortification, um, the abundance of proteobacteria and firmicutes was no longer statistically significant between our groups. Um, we believe the difference in pre- versus post-fortification results 
um, corresponds with a significant reduction in firmicutes um, that we saw in our non-acidified group. And it was not observed in the acidified group. Interestingly, um, introduction of any type of liquid HMF, either type, corresponded with enrichment for actinobacteria, which is often classified as one of our healthy um, intestinal microbiome components. Regarding study limitations, um, increasing the sample size could increase the power of the study and decrease the risk of type 2 error. Um, also, assignment of the acidified and non-acidified liquid HMF groups was not randomized, and there was a temporal difference in stool collection times. And as for all microbiome studies, these results are not necessarily generalizable to other NICUs um, due to various unit-specific environmental factors. In conclusion, um, in this cohort of preterm, preterm infants, the addition of non-acidified liquid HMF to breast milk corresponds with higher SDIs, which is a measurement of alpha diversity and reduced intestinal pharmacutes. An increase in intestinal actinobacteria is seen with either addition of acidified or non-acidified liquid HMF. And additional studies are needed to further evaluate these associative findings and def, uh, determine potential clinical significance. Um, speaking of future studies, I believe it's important to continue to investigate relationships between neonatal diet and the intestinal microbiome as we gain more knowledge and understanding of how specific dietary exposures impact microbial colonization patterns in early life. We may be able to improve not only the nutritional status, but the overall health of our patients. I'd like to thank my research mentors, um, Dr. Hagedorn, Dr. Langwala, Dr. Brownell, and Dr. Madsen. Um, also, several people from the lab and outside the lab that have helped me, uh, Melissa Camayo, Morgan LaJoy, Aaron Bennett, Kendra Mass, and Kelsey Smith. Um, also, support for this project was provided by the Stevenson Fund for Mic Microbiome Research. That's all I have. Thank you very much. Okay. Do we have any questions? Well, any guesses as to what you think the key compounds are in the fortifiers that are? Well, that's a good question. I have a um, comparison slide of the two different um, fortifiers. So the acidified product is, um, as far as compounds, um, looking at the macronutrients, there's more whey protein um, in the acidified product and more casein in the non-acidified. So whether that's clear, there's also slightly more protein and fat in the acidified product. Um, so it's... It's interesting. I think it's, um, I didn't mention this, um, but there's more studies coming out now that's supporting, um, they're seeing a lot of more metabolic acidosis with the acidified fortifier in babies, and a lot of um, units are switching, as we did, to the non-acidified product. And I think it's interesting that you see this metabolic acidosis in babies um, without an impact on the microbiome. It's, it's or at least what we've seen so far. I think that's really interesting. This is nice. <laughs> Very nice work. And, uh, Elizabeth, who's here, I believe, somewhere, yes. uh, has uh, you know, made a point of, of highlighting that different formulations uh, of milk from different places have different composition. So are these acidifiers also commercially available? And, yes. and are, they, are there differences between you know, the different commercially available products, or is it just one manufacturer that actually makes these? Yes, so there are two manufacturers. Um, I tried to leave our names out of the presentation, but the acidified product is made by Infamil or Mead Johnson, and the non-acidified product is made by Simil Agor Abbott. So there are two competing um, manufacturers. That may, that may actually have, again, if a different manufacturer comes mm -hmm. out with a product, they yeah. may be very different results. Yes. So that's a, that's a point that I yeah, Elizabeth this, always mentioned about milk products. And this site does not include um, Prola uh, Prolacta, which is a human milk-based human milk fortifier, which we don't have at our institution, but use um, at other locations. It could also be a comparative analysis. I think it's also, I'll see what your thoughts mm -hmm. are, but I would I believe it's important that there'll be clinical studies, outcome-related yes. to yes. Does it really matter yeah. uh, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other questions? I think it's time to move on. Okay. So, no, 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 Oh, sorry. I was trying to clean up my yeah. slide. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So our final presentation is entitled Using a Modified Pulmonary Index Score to Predict Hospital and ICU Admission to the Emer Pediatric Emergency Department. The presenter will be Dr. Hannah Sneller, and the mentor is Dr. Jesse Stern.
Good morning. Uh, thank you for inviting me to present my research on uh, the MPIS scores in the Pediatric Emergency Department. And I want to say a special thank you to my research mentors, Chris Carroll, Kristen Mulch, and Jesse Sturm. We have no disclosures. As we all know, pediatric asthma is a common chronic disease affecting almost 9 million children in the United States. In 2009, 679,000 children with asthma were seen in an emergency department or admitted to the hospital. Hospitalization and readmission of children with asthma are associated with substantial health care costs. The Modified Pulmonary Index Score is a validated clinical asthma score developed here at Connecticut Children's to quantify illness acuity in children with asthma. It is highly reproducible and utilized to gauge severity of illness in patients with acute asthma exacerbations in our emergency department at Connecticut Children's. For those of you that aren't familiar with the score, the Modified Pulmonary Index score includes six categories. Each category scores from 0 to 3 for a maximum score of 18. It includes scoring for oxygen saturation, accessory muscle use, inhalation and exhalation ratio, wheezing, heart rate per minute for ages less than three and greater than equal to three, and respiratory rate per minute for ages less than six years old and greater than equal to six years old. Our goal was to assess the accuracy of the MPIS in determining safe disposition of children with asthma from the emergency department. This study is a single-center retrospective chart review at a standalone urban pediatric hospital with approximately 65,000 annual emergency department visits. Inclusion criteria were patients with an emergency department diagnosis of asthma exacerbation. The study period was from April 2014 to February 2017, and these patients all had an MKS score recorded during their ED visit. Exclusion criteria were patients transferred from an outside study emergency department and patients with no recorded MPIS values in their medical record for the emergency department visit. Initial MPIS scores at emergency department presentation and degree of improvement in MPIS scores during emergency department stay were analyzed as predictors of ED length of stay and hospital and ICU admission. A multivariable logistic regression was performed to determine if MPIS scores and change in scores predict hospital admission and ED length of stay. A total of 4,943 patients with a diagnosis of asthma were found in our study period and analyzed. 20 patients with a diagnosis of acute asthma exacerbation cannot be analyzed as they did not have an MPIS score recorded. <laughs> This left us with 4,923 patients with MPIS data. A total of 31% of patients seen in the pediatric ED with asthma exacerbation were admitted to the hospital for further management, and 2.7% were admitted to the ICU. The average age of our patients was 5.96 years. 37.9% of patients were female, with a predominance of 62.9% males. And patients in the study were predominantly English-speaking and were more likely to have Medicaid. Seventy-eight percent of the patients in the study received steroids during their emergency department stay, and 95% of the patients received albuterol. The median time to steroids was 93 minutes, and median time to albuterol was 68 minutes. <laughs> Our overall length of, median length of stay in the emergency department was three hours. A higher initial MPIS was associated with a longer length of stay in the emergency department. Patients with a larger mean difference of first to last MPIS or more interval improvement were less likely to get admitted to the hospital. Additionally, less interval improvement in MPIS scores in the emergency department and higher MPIS scores at hospital admission were associated with longer hospital length of stay. 
The multivariable logistic regression model demonstrated that first, last, and change or difference in MPIS were all predictive of hospital length of stay when controlling for differences in demographics and acuity. A second multivariable logistic regression model demonstrated that after controlling for differences in demographics and acuity, the initial MPIS score was an independent predictor of hospital admission. Furthermore, patient, patients admitted to the hospital, a higher initial MPIS was independently associated with ICU admission. Also, more clinical improvement while in the emergency department or more difference between first to last MPIS was associated with less likely need for ICU admission. Among all patients, a larger interval improvement in MPIS while in the emergency department was independently associated with less likely need for hospital admission from the emergency department. Additionally, additionally we completed a subset analysis with the goal to assess factors associated with non-response to treatment in children presenting to the emergency department with moderate and severe asthma exacerbations. Patients, again, had discharge diagnosis of asthma exacerbation. We looked at children greater than 2 and with an initial MPIS score greater than 10. The rate of and we looked at the rate of change of MPIS in the emergency department over time. So we had, had the overall study population, 886 of these patients were less than 2, and 3,823 had an initial MPIS less than 10. So we had 852 patients remaining for this subset analysis. We examined a histogram of change in MPIS per hour, and a threshold of change in MPIS per hour greater than 0 was used to define response, as seen by the red line. There were 178 children considered non-responders with change of zero or increase in score over time. You can see non-responders to the right of zero on this histogram. Overall, there were 674 responders. Non-responders were significantly older, but there was no difference in gender, race, ethnicity, or insurance status. Non-responders were more... There was no difference in initial MPIS on presentation to the emergency department. Non-responders were more likely to have a shorter ED length of stay and have less improvement in their MPIS score over time. They were also likely to be, more likely to be admitted to the hospital and to be admitted to the ICU, as well as arrived by ambulance to the emergency department. Overall, we saw no difference in time to first albuterol or steroid in these patients. So overall, uh, an MPIS score when obtained at initial ED presentation may help predict hospital and ICU admission. Interval changes of the MPIS respiratory score while in the emergency department can further help predict hospital admission, ED length of stay, and hospital length of stay. We believe that MPIS can be a tool in the pediatric emergency departments and inpatient wards to more rapidly determine safe disposition of patients with acute asthma exacerbation. Thank you. Presentation is now open for questions. Dr. So. Hannah, thank you. Very nice presentation. So the, the question I have regarding the FPIS is that you take into account uh, comorbidities. So if patients who come in with with associated disease, let's say we have a you know a patient with cystic fibrosis or, or somebody with heart disease uh, or immune deficiency, uh, can you still use the MPIS as a, as a valid tool for scoring those patients? So that's a great question. We did not look at that subset of patients um, in this analysis, we looked overall at just patients that had a diagnosis of acute asthma exacerbation uh, while they were seen in the emergency department. Uh, we don't always use the MPIS, especially in our uh, pulmonary patients, to assess whether or not they need to be admitted to the hospital. Uh, we do have data on who was admitted to the pulmonary service, um, and there was definitely a split in those patients between ICU and the ward. Uh, but we didn't look at them separated out completely. 
I have a question. Mm -hmm. So the baseline severity of illness may make a difference in terms of how you Severity categories to see if those who are mild, this is more helpful, less helpful mm -hmm. versus those. Yeah, so we don't we don't have data for all the patients on their disease classification. Um, sometimes we have in the chart. Uh, based on pulmonary, what they might be. We do try to do it, but sometimes we don't always have the time in the emergency department to make that diagnosis, and this being a retrospective chart review, not able to quantify that data. And previously, we looked at that. It's actually not true that baseline asthma classification has anything to do with severity. Yes. It's just saying baseline asthma severity has nothing to do with acute illness. Mm -hmm. Last question. This is very nice. Um, did you look, I, I noticed that there were a, a moderate number of patients who ended up coming back to the ED uh, after initial discharge. I wonder, could you also look at this to say, are there any predictive patterns in MPIS for that first visit that might predict a follow-up? So uh, he's, he's referring to the patients that return to the ED uh, within 72 hours. Um, so we did look at that. That's a, like a national standard of care for asthma patients. Uh, we had 149 patients uh, return, um, which is similar to national average return rates. Um, when we looked at this, there really wasn't much difference in, in the data. And so um, we couldn't predict that when they were discharged. All right. So big round of applause for Dr. Snow. Just a reminder, we have some posters out in the hallway, and I also would encourage all our presenters to submit abstracts from their work if they haven't already for national meetings, and also to write them up for publication. So thanks to everybody. Don't forget to look at the abstracts on the way out, please.